Good morning, church, and welcome. My name is Aldrin Anderson, and I have the privilege and honor to bring you the word of God today. I am homeschooled and a senior in high school as well. Today, we will be focusing and reading from John 14, specifically John 14:6, about the way, the truth, and the life. And now before we read, let's pray and go before God. Lord, I ask that you would be with us throughout our day, be with us in our minds and our actions, giving us peace and showing love to others, and that above all, all that we do and all that we say, we say and do to the glory of your name. Amen. John 14, starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would, what, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is the way. But what exactly does that mean? So let's break it down a little more here. So Jesus goes to his disciples and says, My dad has a big house. His house is full of countless rooms, and I'm going there to prepare these rooms for you so that you can dwell in my father's house with me. And you already know how to get to this place. You already know how to get to my dad's house. So now the disciples have heard this and would obviously want to go there. They get to go live in God's house with his son, Jesus, in a room specifically prepared for them. Who, what an offer, and who wouldn't want to take it up? But Thomas didn't quite understand, and for what I think is actually a pretty good reason. You see, Jesus finished explaining this wonderful house that they get to live in, and Thomas thought what I think most of us would have. But where is it? If Thomas doesn't know where Jesus' house is, then how can he get to it? I think that's a fair question, especially from a more secular worldview. You see, Thomas had only known Jesus for a few years. And in that time, Jesus had been consistently doing things that the disciples did not understand. So when Jesus told them, you know how to get there, it would only be rational to respond with, I don't know where it is. How can I possibly go there? When someone invites you over someplace or tells you to go somewhere, your first question almost always is, well, where is it? If you don't even know where it is, how are you supposed to know which way to go? If I were to invite somebody to my house, but never tell them where it is, then consequently, they're never going to show up. Which direction do they go? Do they go left, right, north, east, south, West, which direction are you supposed to go? What path are you supposed to follow? And in fact, just last week, I had invited some friends over to my place to play some card games. But because I'm not 
very good at planning things, I forgot to send them my address. So at two o'clock on the day they were supposed to come over, one hour before they were supposed to be there, I received a text that said, bro, can you send me your address, please? So of course I was like, oh shoot, how are people supposed to get to my house in an hour if I'd never even told them where I live? And this was exactly Thomas's dilemma. In both situations, a destination is spoken of, but was never given the location. So now, just like how my friends weren't able to get to my house because I never said where it was, Thomas didn't know how he was supposed to get to the father's house without knowing where it was. But Jesus responded to him and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. But what does he mean when he says that he is the way? What is a way and how is Jesus it? If we look at the Oxford language's definition of a way, it says a road, path, or street for traveling along. And that's exactly what Jesus is. He is the road or path that we travel along in order to reach the kingdom. So let's take this back to the example of back when I invited people over to my house. I invited them, didn't tell them where I lived, but then if I go and show them how to get to my house, all I need to do is drive to my house, and all they need to do is to follow me. They turn where I turn, stop where I stop, and go when I go. Obviously, I didn't do this because then we all would have been late, but this is exactly what Jesus did for his disciples. He doesn't tell them where the precise location is, because if he did, then they would try to get there on their own, and they would fail. He instead says, there's only one way to my father's house, and that's by following me. You won't make it if you go on your own, but if you follow me and turn where I turn and stop where I stop and go when I go, then you'll find yourself at the doors of my father's house. And he continues in verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. If we know and follow Jesus, we in turn are knowing and following God. We follow Jesus' ways and do what he did and live how he lived. And by doing so, live the way that God wants us to. We can't come to God without Jesus. We are imperfect and sinful beings, and God, being pure and holy, cannot allow us to the kingdom in that state, which is why Jesus is so important. Jesus lived perfectly and unblemished, and only he has an untainted relationship with the Father. We cannot get to the Father by ourselves. Only through Jesus, a pure intercession, are we able to do so. Only through him being the only way and his perfect path and truth can we experience his life and live with the Father. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Noah Langley. I am a senior in our youth group, and I attend Dow High. Um, when I was initially asked to speak about what Jesus means when he says he is the truth, I didn't quite know where to go with a couple parts of this, but I was able to come up with an idea to give us a sense of what at least the world might think truth is. So in high school, um, a couple years back, I was asked to write a paper about what I thought truth was. Um, I had quite a fun time with this. I'm sure that my teacher did not because I made the most jumbled mess of words ever to be as confusing and complex as possible to prove my point that 
the idea of individual truth doesn't really make any sense. However, this backfired on me and I got an A on my assignment. So that was quite wonderful. (laughs) So Jesus says here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. We hear a lot about what truth means. We have teachers like my teacher telling us that truth is some abstract thing. It doesn't actually exist. All that it is is feelings and emotions that shape how we perceive the world. There are other religions that say that truth is a way to get to heaven and that if you work hard enough towards it, you can get there. And there are other people yet who say that the path that you choose does not matter because eventually it will all lead to God. But Christ is suggesting something entirely different here. He is suggesting that there is, in fact, an objective truth, and that the only way to get to that truth is through the fullness of who he is. So who is Christ then? Well, he is fully man, he is fully God, and he is the perfect atonement for our sins. To start off with, he is fully man. This means that he has a lineage, he was born from people, and he is not some God who is completely disconnected from us. It is first established in the promise that was given to Adam and Eve after the fall in the garden. God says to the serpent and to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is Genesis 3.15. From Eve, there would be a son that would crush the serpent's head and that would put an end to the sin of the world. Now, this is a great promise that is given, but it gets expanded upon later. In the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abram, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors your family, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, one through three. Here, God has established his covenant with Abram, soon to be Abraham. And not only is the promise that God has about this son to come, that he will put an end to the world's suffering, that he will put an end to the sin of the world, but now God is saying, not only will he do all of this, he will bless everybody. And through Abraham, a blessing would come to all people. But it doesn't end there. There is another promise in the form of the Davidic covenant. And it says, this is the prophet Samuel speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Here, God is promising to David that not only are the promises that came before, that this son would be a blessing to the entire world and that this son would defeat sin, but that there would be an eternal kingdom 
headed by one of David's sons that would live forever. A full lineage of Jesus' family is laid out in Matthew 1, and it goes through David, Abraham, and all the way back to Adam. And it finishes out by saying that he will be born of a virgin and his name shall be Emmanuel. Now, we've established that he is fully man, but he is also fully God. The Davidic covenant sets this up nicely by saying that God will be a father to him and he will be a son to God. And in Colossians 2.9 says, for in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is fully God while still being fully man. And the final part to all of this is that he would be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Isaiah 53 is an entire chapter about what the Christ would be like. It, start, it states him being the perfect sacrifice for our sins by describing who he would be and how he would establish his kingdom. It doesn't say that he would be this great prideful man who would come in and sweep the Romans out of Israel and destroy any opposition. Instead, it says that he had no former majesty to look at, that we would not desire him, that he would be completely unremarkable. And further from that, that we would despise and reject him, that he would bear the grief of our iniquity and that by his wounds, we would be healed from our sin. He would be killed for our sins though he had none of his own. This idea is completely counter to what the Jews at the time believed. They thought that he was going to be this majestic king who would come in and destroy all of the enemies of Israel forever. But he wasn't this. He was the son of God who was born in a manger, fully God and man because he had to be. If he wasn't fully man then his death wouldn't be enough to pay the price for our sins. And if he hadn't been God, he wouldn't have been able to live a perfect life in order to be this perfect sacrifice. But there is more truth and hope to this than just that he needed to die for us because in Isaiah 53, 11, it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus makes us righteous by his death on the cross, and that is something that we cannot ruin. It is not a thing that happened once and that we have to repeatedly go back to and repeatedly confess about to ensure ourselves salvation. No, it is something that happened once and pays for the entirety of the future. He will carry all of our sins, not just the ones up to the point of us believing in him. He will carry them forever. The truth the world has to offer to you is to say that if you tear yourself up, if you tear yourself apart, if you look deep enough inside of yourself, you will figure out some truth about yourself and you will be happy. Or that if you let your emotions rule your life, somehow you will be happy. Or the other religions that say that if you do enough, you can get into heaven. Christ is not interested in what we have to offer. He is merely graciously interested 
and offering something in exchange for nothing. All that you have to do is believe in him. Believe that he is fully God, fully man, and that he is the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Good morning. My name is Caleb Kaiser. I'm a senior at Dow High School, and I have the privilege of preaching the word of God today. What do you want to be when you grow up? It's a very common question that everyone in this room, I'm sure, has been asked at some point in their life. Especially for me being a senior, that's been a question I get a lot. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do with your life? What is the job that you're going to devote your entire life to? Once again, we're going to be looking at John 14, 6, which says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Today, I'll be talking about that life that Jesus references here in this verse. There are three different aspects that we're going to be looking at today. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, when we are declared righteous in the sight of God. Already, it's starting off with a, a boom. That's one of the greatest things ever. The one God, we, see, we are seen as righteous in his eyes when we accept him and repent of our sins. Glorification, God's final removal of sins in the lives of Christians. When we believers die in this earth and we go to heaven, we experience that new life where sin is no more. All the sin that we deal with here is gone completely. It's taken away. And we spend eternity glorifying God together in heaven. And sanctification, which is the one I'll be focusing on today. The process of being freed from sin. That already sounds like an amazing time. The process of stepping away from the stuff that we hate and getting closer to God. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. As Noah talked about earlier, fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. If you like math, I don't, but I can still tell that that does not add up. <laughs> Jesus is incomprehensible. We can't fathom him. His sacrifice on the cross gave us a new life where all of our sins are forgiven. Not just the ones we've already done. Everything in the past, in the present, and even in the future. Everything we don't even know what we're going to do. Because of his sacrifice, his Holy Spirit is able to enter into our lives to help us to grow and be more like Jesus every single day. Jesus shows us throughout the Bible how we should be living our lives. Everything in the Bible that Jesus is doing is basically a roadmap of how we should be living our lives. We don't follow that map very well. But he has it laid out for us and we can learn by reading the Bible and being in the word how we can be more like Jesus. So what am I going to be doing with my life? That I cannot answer completely. I do know that the next 10 months, I will be doing a gap year in Butler, Pennsylvania. Butler, Pennsylvania is a place that has a special place in many of the people's hearts that go to this church. Our youth group does a lot with this, uh, with Fishbone Ministries, the ministry down in Butler, Pennsylvania. In this gap year, I'll be working closely with the kids in the youth group, and I'll be mentored every day as I go along. I decided to go on this trip, not just because I didn't want to go to college, but because last year in Butler, I felt a calling, and I 100% knew that God was calling me 
to be in Butler for at least the next 10 months. My heart broke for the people in Butler, Pennsylvania. I can see those kids and how happy they seem not knowing what is going on in their house. Many of the parents there don't know Jesus. And many of the kids don't know them because their parents raised them in a non-Christian home. I see these kids running around having a good time in, in the Fishbone youth group, and then they go home to a rough household. I want to be able to help those kids learn that Jesus loves them, that their one father, Jesus, loves them no matter what. Some things I hope to personally get out of this is personal growth in my faith. Faith has been something I've struggled with the past few years, battling through some mental states. I want to be able to grow in that aspect. I want to learn to live the life that Jesus shows us in the Bible. I want to learn to walk the way Jesus walked, talk the way Jesus talked, and I just be a light just by walking around the neighborhood in Butler, Pennsylvania. And one of the things I'm most excited for is to wake up every single day for those 10 months where my one focus is how can I serve the Lord today? Through my 18 years of life, and for many of us in this room, we have a lot going on outside of church. Job, school, sports, friends, family, all that stuff is most likely the first thing on our minds when we wake up or when we go to bed. I have to get this task done at work tomorrow. I have a deadline I have to meet. I have an assignment due at 11.59 and I haven't even started and it's already 11.45. <laughs> but we should strive to wake up every day with God on our minds saying, how can I serve the Lord through getting this task done at this deadline, through doing this assignment? We talked about in my DG recently with a couple of us guys about feeding two dogs. We have the one dog which represents sin and the other dog that represents faith in God. Which dog are you going to feed? The one that you feed is the one that's gonna be stronger and more active. The one that you don't feed will be weak and immobile. I strive to feed that dog to build up my faith so that is my main source in my life. So what job are you going to devote your life to? We should be devoting our lives to glorify God spread his name, and overall, live the life that Jesus himself lived when he was on this earth. That is our lifelong job. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, send your Holy Spirit into our lives so that we can learn and grow to be more like Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity for us youth to come out on this Sunday and preach the word, Lord. We pray that as we go throughout our day, every single day, that we will keep you on our minds in whatever we do. And that when we wake up, you are the first thing we think about. Not work, not school, not looking at our phones, but you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.